hear that. Okay. We're here at the museum at Warm Springs here in Warm Springs, Oregon, and we're going to be talking about this uh, princesses and are the princesses and savages oh, and princesses. Oh, savages and princesses with Liz Woody, who is the director. But then you can uh, just say your name and your title, okay? Okay. okay. Would you like to hold this? Um, I guess so. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Hi, my name is Elizabeth Woody, and I'm the executive director at the museum at Warm Springs. Okay. And could you explain the exhibit? Yeah, this is a touring exhibit that has been uh, uh, touring around the country for, I don't know, a few years maybe. But it's uh, put together and curated by American Meredith and uh, also has a lot of contributors to it with various artists who are, I think, located at Oklahoma State. And it's interesting that this is where it should have arisen from because, you know, Oklahoma, of course, was Indian Territory at one time until, of course, they gave away all the land supposedly free to people who wanted to come and settle. And then, of course, later on, they found out there was a lot of oil there, and there was a lot of you know tragedy that came up, and they're going to have a movie about it real soon that's coming out regarding the Osage people, many who were murdered for their wealth. Um, the exhibit was um, originally, I guess, contracted two years ago, and our um, curator at that time was Natalie Kirk. And right now we have an associate curator, Angela um, Smith, and she's the one who actually put up the show here today. There were a lot of um, qualifications that we needed to meet, had to do with humidity, had to do with uh, being able to pack and store the equipment that we needed here. You know, it, it takes a lot behind the scenes to put up an exhibit, which many people don't know. So there are, are um, environmental qualifications. Yes, there are environmental qualifications. Unfortunately, the museum was built to Smithsonian standards. So we did have to get a humidifier, and we do have to keep constant track of that. Okay, now I noticed that the um, exhibit has, like, well, it's, to me, new age kind of information. I wasn't able to connect to it. Mm -hmm. um, because it was um, more uh, multicultural uh, uh, targets. I'm, I'm not sure, but uh, there are some things I couldn't connect to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Meaning that uh, the pieces were uh, contemporary, mm -hmm. maybe that's too contemporary, and, and not so much about literal representation. Mm -hmm. I think that has a lot to do with the stereotypes aspect of it because you know one thing we we grow up in this American West culture and we take these stereotypes for granted you know for example the uh, uh, the scalps that are circles over here with the with the long black hair on them they're the little round circles with black hair and it's meant to represent what happened in the 1800s when bounties were issued for scalps of all native people so there were there were kind of entrepreneurs that went around killing Indian people and taking their scalps to go and, and get money. Like a child would receive a certain amount of money, you know, a man receives a certain amount of money and a woman receives a certain amount of money. 
But when you look at it, it, it's kind of decorative, but when you get closer to the objects and you start learning about what it represents, it has a really kind of um, oof, it, grisly aspect to it that we aren't necessarily accustomed to. And then to the right of it, there's the Cherokee Princess banner, and that is referring to everybody saying that they have a, a Cherokee princess in their family tree. And so, you know, that's the banner that represents like the queens. You know, there's a lot of the powwow queens and the, uh, you know, just basically they, they should issue those to all of these Cherokee princesses that are out there. But there are real Cherokee people and they are in Oklahoma and they're I think in North Carolina. And with the um, the film that was issued here, well, actually, you have that that piece. There's a piece right there with the lady in it, who's uh, who's um, see. There's the, the different objects, like the helmets. Mm -hmm. and, you know, now I know helmets kind of relate to the sport, sporting mm -hmm. type of it. Could you let, tell me a little bit about that? Well, I think they have to do with mascots. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's like, we, we also see in our sporting events, there's a lot of the Cleveland Indians and Washington Redskins. And recently there's been a big movement to to have Indian mascots not be part of our American culture because it's very damaging to the young people who see that and see themselves as, um, you know, vicious, bloodthirsty, that type of thing. And whereas Indian people are more peaceful in general across the United States, and it's only when conflict ensued, and there, there's actually American historian Patty Limerick who says this, only ensued after both sides ceased to get what they wanted out of their relationship. So then if the um, settlers wanted land and the Indians were in their way, and the Indians, you know, they wanted to trade for items that were beneficial, makes their life easier, and the settlers weren't trading with them. Then, of course, it became damaging, and there was conflict. And I think that that's really important for us to know that most of the cultures in the Americas were, were essentially had a coexistence in mind because we had 500, over 500 different tribes in the United States alone. So that tells you that these are 500 different types of people in different languages that had to basically share an area together. And I think that that's har harmful to our society to think of what, it, what uh, happened in our history and the Indian people don't get to have a real accurate representation of what their history was about. And I know that, uh, for example, and it's also in this another book that Stephanie Kuntz wrote about, I think it was a socialization of the American family. And she actually had some statistics there that it took as much to, to, for the United States government to have one settler placed here in the West as it took to kill an Indian. And it cost a lot to kill an Indian. When they finally, you know, after the Indian Wars, and they tallied up the costs. It was expensive. It was terrible. And of course, the army themselves, oftentimes soldiers in their journals would write, you know, the Indians die hard. We can't seem to kill them. 
because they're defending their country and they're defending their family. So I think that's part of why these stereotypes and mascots can affect people in a bad way. I myself, I'm not a sports person. I could care less about those types of things, but it's important for enough people that they began the movement to change it. It did affect uh, me as a young child because when um, there was Indians versus pioneers, and I was going to school pioneers, so I seen the Indians and the pioneers, and they'd have posters up, you know, and I go, where's my flaming arrow? <laughs> I need a flaming arrow. Oh, yeah. It's like circle the wagons, that expression. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of expressions that we take for granted that have to do with, you know, making the Indian people the villain mm -hmm. and the, the bad guy. I know growing up in Madras, and I went to school in Madras, and it was the white buffaloes. But everybody there were more into being a pioneer. You know, it was kind of odd that the, the, the community considered themselves pioneers and that they were very um, uh, in, ingenious, that they did a lot of stuff on their own. But the real fact of it is the United States government subsidized them subsidize them land, subsidize them with monetary stuff, subsidize them with um, you know, tools. And they also had a lot of uh, benefit from being next to Indian tribes because they learned a lot about the land from the Indian people, you know, mothers especially. People don't like to see the, any baby suffer, so they would teach people across the, the way would help them take better care of their babies whatever was the best way or most convenient way. So it went both ways, that kind of stuff. And I think I heard some of my family talking about this, is back in the ranching days, that most of the ranchers in this area would team up and, and run their cattle to market together. They made use of having multiple hands running the cattle, and so there were sister ranches. And my grandfather's ranch was one with a ranch in Jefferson County. And I met an elderly man who told me that my grandfather, Lewis Pitt, was his best friend. As a kid, they used to do the cattle together. And I didn't know that. And he just said, you know, he was a wonderful man. And I always thought about him as my friend. Mm -hmm. The el elder people in Madras understand that, that there were ties with uh, the reservation other than land. You know, it was mutual. <laughs> Um, like mutual respect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so today um, we live in the, we still have the stereotypes and they still live amongst us. I mean, they still mm -hmm. circulate amongst us. Mm -hmm. How do you, how, what do you feel um, a young person, what's, what's their, how can they protect themselves from the hurt? Well, I think when people come to consciousness, you know, about what, what uh, the representation is like, and they come to consciousness about history, that most of the time, like with my first cousin, uh, Pita, he was really upset. And I got a bunch of books together, and I gave it to him, and I said, there is a process here that is, is damaging. It's called colonization. That most of the Europeans who came from Europe were escaping really bad things. You know, they didn't have any land. 
they didn't they were religious prosecution um, all of the people the peasants and the serfs had no rights only the landed monarchy did so when boatloads of people came here to get away from that they wanted to have a better life but they also carried with them these prejudices like the uh, us versus them the heathen versus savage versus the Christianized who were civilized and I think the other people and it's still active today when people think of the Muslims as evil but the Muslim religion and the Jewish religion and the Christian religion are all part of the same same thread of religions they're just at different times early on Abraham was part of the Muslim belief system and the Jewish religion you know Moses and then third was the Christian religion around Christ who is martyred and murdered but I think that even that people don't seem to see they don't seem to see it as such but it's all the same it's the same God so when Peter read the books that you recommended what was his reaction uh, he became uh, really well first of all he was agitated and angry and then he began to see it as a system you know, this is a system that is ingrained in our society and that it's not necessarily the uh, best system to be part of. And he, of course, had difficulty with uh, individuals not understanding him and his belief system, not understanding his, his ancestry. Um, you know, his, he's not all Native you know, he's, his father's my uncle and his mother's Nancy Pitt, and she's a pioneer. And she's from a, a really from a original pioneer family that came here. And he says, you know, I'm proud of both sides of my family. They both had struggle. He said, so I'm really, he, he just felt better that he knew why things more or less were happening, like policy-wise, economically. And it is a lot of economics involved in this stuff. And I think that the other part of the land issue is that they couldn't treat, they couldn't give land away without a treaty. So they had the treaty with us before we exceeded our 10.5 million acres to have the 640,000 acres that we hold in retention of our former territories. So he's able to discuss those things with people like, no, this was not given to me. No, this is something my tribal people retained. And we did it through treaty with the United States government, which is an original contract between my, my, my people and the United States government. So yeah, he was able to come back and talk about stuff. And then when he eventually went to college in New York City, um, he found a lot of people from all over the world went to Columbia University. And they all were, you know, different people of color. And he found that the brown people were more receptive to him than the, the white kids who were competitive. But he had a hard time, for example, with um, math for a bit. And they said, boy, we had this when we were in elementary school. And he realized that our school system's not that great. <laughs> Public school. <laughs> and he had to learn all of that in college. So then the, um, how do you feel the reservation can uh, um, recognize 
the stereotype within themselves, because that's what I did after I seen the film there, that, mm -hmm. that film, Engine something. Uh. But after I seen that, I realized I carry that stereotype within myself. Either I, you know, and I, it's like there. I don't It's like a natural thing. It's like part of me. Mm -hmm. And I said, and I'm used to it. Yeah. You know, I've come used to it. And um, I don't know if that's good or bad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like a, a, a renegade. I like being a renegade. Yeah, yeah. We all like being a renegade. And yeah. then we all, there's the red skin, which oh. we didn't know at this point meant the scalps. Oh. But we thought of ourselves as red Indians. Oh. You know, so that's red skin. We had red skin. But really, we can't use red skin as much because it means these scalps. Now, and that, that was some awareness that I didn't really have. Um, and <clears throat> we're not monocultural. We might, in our modern age, have what's called pan-Indianism. For example, that we all go to war dances or powwows, mm -hmm. as they're called now. But in, and when we go back in our history, we didn't have powwows. There was powwows at Celilo. And you remember the war dances they used to hold there when they had the longhouse? But prior to that, you know, there was like uh, more medicine dances and more social dances. You know, my grandma always talks about the bunny hop and she talks about all these dances that they used to have at New Year's when they get together, so social dances. So there's more authentic, if we get more authentic, we go back in time and we know that what really we participated in and why, that gives us more knowledge. And you know, social dances, that was time for the young people to see each other, you know, make, a, make friendships and make romance, you know. And I think that was important for us because we didn't marry entirely into our own tribe. We, we had other people that we married into. People think of Yakima Nation as a different tribe, but they were across the river. There were different bands, different bands on our side. Umatilla had different bands. But there was also people who would fall in love and go to Southern Oregon. I remember one story of a woman who was in love and she just left her family and walked all the way down to the border to go meet her honey and get married. <laughs> yeah, and that was, not, that was frowned upon because most people wanted to arrange really nice marriages for their family and political alliances. So um, what do you recommend? Do you recommend people, I mean, this is um, kind of the last week of the, uh, this session, but I, uh, I wished I would have gotten more people here to see so we can talk about it. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What do you recommend? I, that film right there? Yeah, I think there's a lot of materials out there. One of the things is the film. I think it's available, right, on sale. Uh, talks about uh, movies. And most of the movies that we've been witnessing, everybody's saying that we've got accurate representation now that we didn't have before, but if you, even if you look at the um, uh, reservation dogs, it's filled with cliches and it's filled with stereotypes, if you think about it. But it's stereotypes that we laugh at and that we, we are familiar with. It is a part of us. You know, Skoden, 
the red English. That means let's go then. But it, it red English skoden. And when I used to teach English at IIA, we talked about it. That for us, red English was as legitimate as English. But it, we needed to have our students learn how to write English papers, how to write papers on theory, how to, you know, using logic and analysis and comparison and contrast. And then red English, you can do that, but it's a conversational, colloquial type of English. And I think back to the way my grandparents spoke, a lot of things were alluded to that I was so familiar with the stories that they had told me that when they would talk, I could refer to those stories. You know, the land, the myths, the songs. And the, my grandmother, of course, um, she was from some national, she actually was born and raised at Kenita. And my grandfather was born and raised here in an agency in Warm Springs, Tanana Valley. And his mother insisted that he speak and learn the Queen's English because that's what she was raised with. And that was came from the um, Hudson Bay Fur Trading Company and the school systems that they set up before anybody else was here, the United States. And everybody says, oh, the Queen's English, you're so hoity-toity. And I said, no, I think, that's, I think that's a fairly good standard to abide by. But he also spoke seven Indian languages and dialects. So he spoke Queen's English, he spoke Wasco, he spoke Kikst, in other words, and the various dialects of Kikst. He spoke Ichishkin and various dialects of Ichishkin, including Nez Perce, which is further away and more different. More different. He spoke um, uh, Chinook jargon. So altogether, seven languages. And I was told the reason why they did that was because the Wasco people, I, I'm trying to talk like that. It's hard to do it. Um, <laughs> I was a little over-exaggerated. <laughs> um, it was easier for them to learn everybody else's language to trade than it was for the people who wanted to trade in the Columbia River to learn Wasco or Kikst. And I think that's a phenomenal testament to our brilliance as a people. So, and then even, you know, Warm Springer spoke several dialects and also may have spoke Kikst. My grandmother said she couldn't because she felt like you had to twist your tongue around, you know, all these things that she'd say. And, and even then her dialect of Ijishkin was a very distinctive one that was in the Kanita, the basin there, the mountains. And she'd argue with my grandfather, like, I was placed here, my people were placed here. Your people were placed in the Columbia River. And he said, no, no, you were Columbia River Indian. She said, my dad was in the Columbia River, but my mother was from here. This is where the creator placed us. And her, her dialect was that distinctive that our, our oh, aunt, could tell. Yeah, our auntie um, Atwai Arlita Rohn, she verified that. She said, oh yeah, that's the way they pronounce things. So, so in the language, um, we find that when, um, okay, the, that's where the honorable stereotype comes. You're, you're, the, there are some people like, like put you 
in a, a category of almost um, enlightenment, you know, and stuff like that. And we like that. Yeah, <laughs> sacred. Yeah, the sacred category. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, people, I mean, they say, are you Indian? I go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or they're scared of you. Yeah. But they don't, or they don't believe you're Indian because you're not dressed like one. <laughs> yeah. So how? I mean, do you believe in your in your life are that stereotypes will always be around? That 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 there's no. I mean, even we. I mean, I um, use stereotypes. You know. Yeah, I think it will be around. I mean, look at the, you know, people don't get upset when Vikings are portrayed as, you know, bloodthirsty savages. But now there's this big Viking movement in the film industry portraying them as really staunch and honorable to their own people. Um, not invaders, but as explorers. And, and it's not well known, but the uh, Viking people were in the North American continent on the eastern side because there's kind of Algonquian words that are uh, actually Viking words, the Danish and Swedish, or I think more Danish. And in Danish languages, there are some, I guess some people have said that there are Algonquian words included. So there's been transatlantic uh, contact not just with the Vikings, but with Ireland. And, you know, so it's kind of interesting. And people say also with African people in the lower part of the um, you know, Americas that there's a lot of influence from African culture that they've been discovering and the, and the um, pre-Columbian Americas. And the Pacific Rim's had a lot of contact over, you know, the millennial years because of canoe canoe journeying, canoe songs, knowing the ocean currents, knowing the winds. And so it's not like we were separated at all. It, it's more like we've been um, pulled apart by the, the stereotypes, by a belief system that was beneficial for a few. You know, the um, um, not the 1%, there's another word for it. But, you know, there, there's an, an elite. And it's better for us to be ignorant of our lack of contact with each other when not, reali not realizing now, when this is a movement, that people are building alliances with the New Zealand Maoris. You know, and there's the uh, Ainu in Japan. There's the Mongolian and the uh, Far East Russian Sakhalins. In, in Russia and in, in China that are related, look a lot like us and have a lot of similar things that we share in terms of our reverence for the land and being able to live on the land and love of horses. Thank you. Is there anything you'd like our community to know? Well, the museum's doing its best to provide educational opportunities, not just for the tribal people, but for the public. And this is like the first exhibit that I was think was geared towards a modern contemporary person who was interested in learning more. And of course, because it's from Oklahoma, 
it may seem like different to us, but in reality, we share all of these things kind of across the country. You know, the, the pressures. And thank you. I mean, because you, it's like an aware, the awareness. Because we are pretty much protected on the res, you know, kind of mm -hmm. like we have this little shell. Yeah. <laughs> and then when you poke a little hole and you come in, and a little sunbeam comes through, you go, ah! <laughs> yeah, I, I really don't know. I, I can't speak to the awareness of people, but we've got a lot of really amazing people in our community. And uh, it goes both ways, you know, we need to share our our thoughts and our artists with the world mm -hmm. okay thank you <laughs>